I am Subodh Pandit, physician, inter internist, licensed, board certified, but uh, born and brought up in India, land of tremendous diversity. And uh, there are many things I learned. I went on a search for 20 years to ask certain questions that I thought I wanted answered for myself. And I'm going to uh, share with you just a little bit. We did some last night, and then I'm going to share some a little bit now, and then a little bit more this afternoon from 4 o'clock. There are some things I learned. If you want to speak to somebody and really give them a message, then the first requirement is that you learn the language of that person. We, when we come into a room like this, we have our jargon. It means nothing to somebody outside. Let me give you an example. Okay. Here I'm talking to a person who's never been to church. I tell him, hey, got to wash your garments in the blood of the lamb. <laughs> blood of the lamb. I thought you wash off blood. <laughs> Nana, there's a fountain filled with blood. <laughs> Ew! Fountain filled with blood? Huh? And that stuff will clean your garments. Blood will clean my garments? I thought we got to clean the garments off blood. Nah, he's coming soon. Oh, will there be enough time for me to go home and prepare dinner for him? Nah, he's coming in the clouds of heaven. Clouds? You see how far we are from talk. I'm not talking about Spanish or German. I'm talking about English language that we use as a jargon which nobody else will understand, except if you are mm, a Christian. And you know, mm, Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And mm, higher than that, Last-day Seventh-day Adventist Christian. <laughs> it's time we, if you really want to help others prepare for eternity, then learn the language first. It's no use going to New Guinea where they speak in pidgin English and start your normal talk. So what we did last night was try to get us to think the way a secular mind thinks and address the same questions that he or she and I have. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're not going to talk about this literature called the Bible, whether it's the Word of God. That means nothing to somebody else outside there. What's the meaning of word of God? I don't even know whether there's a God in existence. So we got to think like them and first ask whether you and I are actually enamored with what's there. Is it fascinating? Not, I've got to do it in the morning, you know. 
10, 20 minutes, okay, two chapters. No. Is it fascinating? Has it gripped you? And it cannot grip you as the word of God first. It must grip you as ordinary literature. In the field of literature, does it have something that will grip you? And that's what we're going to look at today. After I had done, this is my search, I had questioned myself, can a rational mind ever accept the concept of the supernatural? And we did that last evening. And we found that if you really honestly follow science, reason and logic, it is a non-negotiable issue. There is beyond the natural something known as the supernatural. And logic and the order principles of science will tell us that if there is something there, there has to be a, an, a being out there, there has to be a personality out there, and that personality most probably is also omniscient, omnipresent and omnipotent. This is without looking at any verse in the Bible, without looking at anything in the Quran or in the Bhagavad Gita or in the Dhammapada of the Buddhists. This is sheer science, logic and reason. Now, once we come to that point, the question really is, has that being broken through the barriers between the supernatural and the natural and told us anything? There are claims. And more than one claim. So my first question was, okay, what's the claim? And is that claim written down so I could you know, mull over it? Oh yeah, there's more than one claim written down. Came from the supernatural world to us. And from that supernatural world, the claim was the absolute truth resides there, not here. So from there, I'll tell you. Good. So I asked the question, is that literature, can it be classified so that it would give me some hope and some credibility in my own heart? So the question was, how do you classify that literature? Ancient literature is classified into four, basically. Folk tale, folklore, legend, myth, historical. What do these words mean? Folk tale, there's no attempt to state a real true story. The main intent is to be interesting and bring out a lesson or a moral. In other words, it's, it's, they know there's not true. The sun is smiling. Uh, the wind is whispering. The birds and the animals got together in a big committee meeting. They know it's not true, but just bring out a, you know, a lesson or a moral. When it comes to a legend, it's probably based on a real true story but changes have crept in over a period of time and those changes are exaggerations so that you come from the natural to the supernatural and look at the time period. To really make a true legend it requires centuries because the changes must start after the next generation when there are no eyewitnesses left to challenge your change. That is a legend. A myth is so far back in history that it's generally accepted as somebody's imagination. The story is probably not true. The characters are probably fictitious and the, and the time period is usually centuries or even millennia. Historical, the attempt is to state the story as it is. No significant additions, no core changes. Why do we use the word no core changes? Because every ancient literature has changes. You cannot escape that. The question is whether the changes are change the story. 
not a peripheral little bit over there. Yeah, those peripheral bits every story has, every ancient literature has. But did was there core changes? Did it change the tenor, the run of the story? The closer to the event, the greater the credibility. So with this, I looked at five claims out there. The Hindu claim, the Buddhist claim, the Islamic claim, and the Judeo-Christian claim. Jews and Christians, in this instance, I put them together. Let's look at them. In Hinduism, the Rig Veda is the earliest followed by the next three Veda texts and then followed by an anthology which is called the Upanishads and then the epic or a large story called the Ramayana and then the baby of them is the Mahabharata. Maha is big, Bharata is story, big story in which is the Bhagavad Gita which is the kernel of Hindu thought at least accepted today. Look at these words. Lord Krishna first spoke Bhagavad Gita to the sun god some hundreds of millions of years ago. That is too far back for me to go and check. So, it's not just me, it's all the Hindu scholars as well. Krishna, who is the eighth incarnate of the god Vishnu, according to Hindu mythology, see the word mythology? Because everyone accepts Hindu literature to be mythological. It's too far back, you cannot go and check it out. How about Buddhism? I'm going to mention four statements which are chronological order in Buddhism. Here are the four statements. The humanity of the Buddha is expressed by a Theravada monk. That means a Theravada monk was one who was contemporary to Buddha. Was he not born at Lumbini? Did he not complete existence at Kusinara? Wasn't he like you and me? Born here? Died here? Later on, Second statement, soon after the mass, passing of the master, a change began to creep in. Did you see that? Three, at the beginning of the Christian era, now 500 years have gone by, the transcendental nature of the Buddha became more and more pronounced. And then, in one of the most important pieces of Mahayana literature, the Mahayana is the later Buddhist literature, which is now 700 to 1000 years later, there is not much of the man left in the Buddha. He is now an exalted being who has lived for countless ages in the past and will continue to live forever. So from the monk who was his contemporary who said, hey, he <coughs> was born here and he died here 700 to 1000 years later. No, he wasn't born here. He had a previous life and he didn't die here. He continues to live forever. That is a legend. <laughs> Judaism, there are 39 books, 20 different authors living at vastly different periods of time. Some writings appear mythological, others are accurately historical. I could not classify the Old Testament. There are just too many. So if anybody here wants to try a hand at classifying what you would classify that, you can help me out. Islam. The Quran was put together in writing by 652 CE, common era, same as AD. Within 30 years of the life of Muhammad's life, only some changes in the text are accepted by scholars. I'm being extremely generous here. Because actually, by the time the third caliphate came around, you know, after Muhammad, there were caliphs, four of them, one after the other. The third was Uthman. During his reign, Ali the fourth, who was later to become the fourth caliph, said there were corruptions, not exactly corrupt, there were different variations of the Quran in, in the countryside. 
So Uthman felt it was his duty to settle the issue. So he got together a, a committee, top scholars, go through the length and breadth of the land and get what is the original words of Muhammad. And so they did it, brought together. That's the Quran we have today. The unfortunate thing is that Uthman ordered all the other manuscripts destroyed. So today, a scholar cannot really go and check it out. So it's there. I'm being generous. But we can say it's historical in one sense. How about Christianity? The earliest manuscripts about 30, 134 AD. The original manuscripts were within 20 to 50 years of the life of Jesus. Sukenik was a Jewish scholar. He was doing some excavations and came across some tombs. Near the tombs were some coins. The coins are dated 41 AD and prior. On the tombs are written the words, Jesus is Lord, Jesus ascended one. You see, when the story unfolds, there's first the event itself. And then the community takes that story and makes it into an oral tradition. It is the oral tradition that is later on written down as a manuscript. If you have these gaps very close, you get more credibility. Here you have the closest of any literature in the world. There is no time gap between the actual event and the traditional story that was set by the community. Within 10 years, which is no time, same generation, they were saying that this person we consider God. And we, we, we consider it so strongly that we will write it and etch it on our tombs. Because that's where we believe our faith must rest. Can you see that there's no gap really between the actual event and the story that was formed. The original manuscripts are within 20 or 50 years of the life of Jesus. Do you know which are the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament? We think of the Gospels, right? But no, they were the letters of Paul. And remember, he came into the movement after the disciples. So the movement had already set the story by the time this man came along, picked it up, and then wrote his episodes. Some of those episodes are within 15 years of the life of Jesus. No time to start a legend, no time to complete the legend, and there's no way you can call it mythological. We can already say emphatically that there are no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after AD 80. Sir William Albright is one of the three greatest archaeologists in the world. Nelson Gluck is the other one. Listen to what he says. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. He's a Jew. How about Sir William Ramsey? Sir William Ramsey is another of the three greatest archaeologists. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of trustworthiness. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians, not religious historians, of historians. And then Norman Geisler, a biblical scholar, in Luke, in all, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands without error. You do not find this level of credibility 
in any other ancient writing in the world. So what I did was, okay, hmm, looks, looks historical. Let me compare this with what everybody knows to be historical of that same period. And I looked at two criteria. One is the gap between the story and the oral tradition, between the oral tradition and the first written manuscript, between the first written manuscript and the earliest manuscript we have. Any of these gaps, if they are very, very large, the credibility goes down. If they are close, the credibility goes up. So here are the three that I looked at. Caesar's Gallic Wars, written in 100 BC, and the earliest manuscript we have is 900 AD, a gap of 1,000 years. In other words, for 1,000 years, we have no idea whether anybody deleted, added, or modified any of it. It's the same with Herodotus' history. 400 BC was when it was written. Earliest manuscript is 900 AD, a gap of 1,300 years. Tacitus Annals, 1,000 years. How about the New Testament? Look at the gap, 20 to 50 years. And if you look at Sukenik's coins and that uh, tomb in which it was clearly written that Jesus is Lord and God, then the gap is 10 years. That's all. What is the difference between 1,000 years and 10 years? Look, friends, if you and, and the whole... A uh, secular world can accept and swallow smoothly 1,000 years. Why are you gagging at 10 years? It's not fair. And like I said last night to us, if you are an, uh, an inquirer, if you really want to know the truth of the matter, here it is facing you clearly, staring you in the face, that this piece of literature has no gap. You can't say that there were some stories put into it. The other point of credibility with these stories are how many manuscripts back the story. If they're just a handful, then one night we could have gone to all of them and changed them and nobody would know that we changed them and we would have corrupted the text. But if there are lots of them, spread out one here and one in, California, one in Maryland and the other one in London, then boy, you're going to have a hard time corrupting a whole text. Are you with me? Yes. So if there are just a few manuscripts, you could corrupt it. So there's a question that could be corrupted. If there's a large number of manuscripts, it's difficult to go through all of them and correct all of them or corrupt all of them. Um, Caesar's Gaelic Wars is backed by eight, 10 manuscripts worldwide. Herodotus History, 8. Tacit and Tacitus Annals by 20. You could possibly do something with them. The champion of Greek literature is Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad is backed by 643 manuscripts. Somebody said, wow, right? Hey, that's exactly what we said last night. If you are honest and if some, and if some information comes to you that's impressive, you should say, wow. You should say, wow. That's a wow factor, we said, in being honest. All right, now suppose I told you that the New Testament was backed by 664 manuscripts. Would you say, oh, wow? wow. 
It's backed by 5,664 manuscripts. Five thousand six hundred and sixty-four Greek manuscripts. If you take the Latin, the Aramaic, the Arabic, and all of them together, do you know how many manuscripts, full and part, back the New Testament? Twenty-four thousand nine hundred. There is no chance that an honest inquirer and a scholar can ever call this piece of literature called the New Testament as anything near mythological or legendary. In real terms, the New Testament is easily the best attested ancient writing in terms of sheer number of documents, the time span between the events and the document, and the variety of documents available to sustain or contradict it. There is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. No other ancient book has anything like such early and plentiful testimony to its text, and no unbiased scholar would deny that the text that has come down to us is substantially sound. In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone among ancient prose writings. This is not among ancient religious writings. This is among all ancient writings. You can start with the Sumerians and the Mayans and the Babylonians and the Egyptians, come down the Chinese and the Indian, the Greek and the Roman, put them all on the table. This one bitty little book called the New Testament stands out as the most credible piece of ancient literature in the world. I'm not saying it's God's word, friends. I'm just saying it's fascinating. And if it's fascinating, why? I'd like to read it, wouldn't you? Yeah. Of course. To be skeptical then actually of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity for no document of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. Settle it in your minds because you cannot speak to somebody else unless you are convinced first. That is where my search led me. I spoke, I, I speak uh, on, my ministry takes me to secular university campuses. And I've been to five continents now on invitation by groups of students who want to know what this guy is talking about. And every time I bring this up, there will be at least one in the audience who will walk down this aisle and tell me, boy, you settled it for me. And it's not me who's settling it for them. It is the information. Amen. And that's it. So the Quran and the New Testament are definitely historical in nature, with the New Testament having the highest credibility and integrity of text. Boy, time is running along. Let me just one more. This is the first question I asked. What kind of literature is it? The second one is, does that literature allow me to test it for credibility? Don't you think that's a reasonable question? You're telling me that you came from the supernatural world, can I test you out? Is there anything inside there that you have written that allows me to test? Or should I just swallow it? The Hindus, we have to accept it as it is, otherwise there's no point in trying to understand the Bhagavad Gita and speak a Lord Krishna. Buddhism, 
The genuine realization of the emptiness of the phenomenon world is a direct intuition of the highest truth. Absolute truth is unconditional, undeterminate and beyond thought and word. So both the Hindus and the Muslims say you cannot test it, swallow it or spit it out. Don't try to test it. There is no way you can test it. The only way you can test it actually is in your life, in real experience. My question was, why should I experience that? Give me a reason for experiencing it before I experience it. Islam, there is a test. Produce one chapter comparable to it. Call upon your idols to assist you if you, what you say is true. But if you fail, as you are sure to fail. In other words, here's the Quran. Produce something like it. Well, that's a fair enough test. So I said, okay, let me get to it and see if there's any way we can deal with this. Check. From the test thrown out. The moment I started, I was snagged by four things. It does not say what aspect to be equaled. Should I equal it in prose or poetry, diction, theology, philosophy, idea of truth? Doesn't say. What's the method of comparison? Will it be a objective numbers or just my feeling? It doesn't say how we will make the comparison. Number three, who will be the judge? Who will say that what I have brought is better or worse than the Quran? Will it be a mullah in one of the mosques, masjids? Or will it be a neutral committee appointed by the United Nations or something? Hmm, they don't say. Number four, what language? The orthodox Muslim considers only one language as the language of divine communication. That's Arabic. I have in my library a English translation of the Quran. An orthodox Muslim will never consider that the Quran. A Quran is the Quran only in the Arabic language. And so I ha if I have to really take up this challenge, I have to write it out in, Qur in, in Arabic. I know hundreds of my friends of Muslims who don't know one line of literary Arabic. There goes the universal character of this challenge. It is not universal. It has thrown me out of its purview. And therefore, a challenge that is not clear, which is nebulous, and applies to only those who know one language, is not a challenge. A challenge must be one that is, can take the sweep of the whole of humanity. It was not there. So I came to Judeo-Christian scriptures. And to understand this challenge, I'd like to go back to the 18th century to a scientist, to an atheistic scientist. His name was Simon Perelaplace. In fact, some of his science statements are even known today in the world of science. He was the Isaac Newton of France. And this is what he said about a certain concept which he, which he called scientific determinism. We may regard the present state of the universe as the effect of its past and the cause of its future. Fair enough. And suddenly he goes on to an idea of an intellect. An intellect which at a certain moment would know all the forces that set nature in motion and all position of all items of which nature is composed. If this intellect were also vast enough to submit this data for analysis, it would embrace in a single formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the tiniest atom. For such an intellect, nothing would be uncertain and the future, just like the past, would be present before its eyes. 
scientific determinism says that if there is a mind, an intellect that knows every particle in the universe, knows every feature of those particles and knows every law that governs every particle in the universe, then to that intellect nothing would be uncertain. The past, the present, the future would be one picture. How do we test that scientifically? First of all, you cannot test it by what that intellect tells you. Why? Because my mind is only a few billion cells. If there are a million facts out there, and I know only 10, how can I know whether the 11th one is true or not? So there's no way I can test this mind. It is too far and high for me. He's no, he knows too much. I cannot test it. I cannot test whether what he's telling me is the truth if he tells me anything except at one point. If he tells me something that will happen later on, before it happens, and if it comes to pass, I might have been able to identify that intellect. Are you with me? Yes. It's called predictive prophecy. Before it happens, and that's exactly the test that is in this Judeo-Christian scriptures. Present your case, says the Lord. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Because I am God, I will tell you what will happen afterwards. I am that intellect of Laplace. I have scientific determinism. Nobody else has. So I'll tell you what happened later on. Let's check it out. Did he say anything? called predictive prophecy. Why do we call it predictive prophecy? Because the prediction and the fulfillment are completely separate except by the fulfillment. The guy who predicted didn't fulfill it. Somebody else had to fulfill it. Or it happened very late. Or it was just against the run of anything that we know as the grain of human thinking. Then that would be something that would impress us, right? I'm going to just show you one. Babylon. Jeremiah was a prophet who wrote these words. Babylon shall become a heap without an inhabitant. I will make her springs dry. He wrote these words when Babylon was at its zenith. It was the greatest, strongest fortified city in the world. The walls were so broad that two chariots could run side by side to, uh, across uh, around the entire perimeter. This roof would be about how, how many feet? 40 feet? Do you know how high the walls of Babylon went? 175 to 200 feet. So who's going to break down those big high walls? Well, the only way you can knock a city that size is to lay siege to the city. Don't let anybody come in and out. Stand at the gate. Because food is on the outside. That's where the farms and all are. Don't let any food get inside there. Starve them. Then they come out with the white flag waving. Why would Babylon laugh at anybody who would want to lay siege? Because the maximum you can lay siege if you're a real rich general or a rich king is about three years. You've got to just keep your soldiers sitting around there and just paying them for doing nothing. 
So if you're really rich and very powerful, okay, three years, Babylon would laugh at anybody wanting to lay siege because in the storehouses in Babylon, there was enough food for all the inhabitants for a period of 20 years. Now go, now go lay siege to it. You can't break it down. You can't lay siege to it. But this man who is a prophet of God says it will be knocked out. Do you know how it was knocked out? When the Cyrus the Medo-Persian came, he had his favorite horse. And this is a traditional story. The river Euphrates is what watered Babylon. Went on one side and came out the other. When he went on his forays trying to find, figure out how he would get Babylon because that was standing in the way between his aspirations of becoming world emperor. And when he waded through Euphrates, his horse died in the river. He got mad with the river. The river was what killed his favorite horse. He called his generals and said, I want this river dry. I'm so mad. And so the entire Medo-Persian army, they dug from 80 to 300 aqueducts paralleling the river Euphrates and drained the river dry. The moment the river was dry, Cyrus saw his way into the city on the riverbed. And Babylon fell in one night. I will make her springs dry. What about today? Few words evoke as many images of ancient decadence, glory and prophetic doom as does Babylon. Yet the actual place 50 miles south of Baghdad is flat, hot. What's the next word? Dis wasn't that the word the prophet said? That there will be no inhabitants? Yes. Without an inhabitant. 2,500 years later you don't have to be a believer or an unbeliever. Just go and see it. And at least believe your eyes. It is still uninhabited. That predictive prophecy came true. Now, suppose I am a prophet. Do I look like one? <laughs> you know, if I was standing, you might say, yeah, man. Oh. <laughs> Suppose I came to you, and you're of Scandinavian descent, your family. Everybody is fair-skinned, blonde hair, blue eyes. Everybody. But I'm a prophet. So I come to you as a family and say, hey, you are going to have a son with curly black hair. And at the age of four, he's going to be able to read all of Shakespeare's works. At the age of 12, he is going to graduate from university with a professional degree. At the age of 20, he is going to represent the United States in the butterfly stroke in the Olympics and win the gold medal. And at the age of 30, he would have gone into astrophysics by that time and Stockholm would have called him for the Nobel Prize. Five predictions. If all of them came true, what would you think of me? Prophet. Not only that, you would chase me all over the ends of the earth to find out what my next prediction would be. 
Wouldn't you? I would. Man, everything that he said came true. And there's only five. Suppose there are ten. How much higher would my credibility go up? The Judeo-Christian scriptures. I haven't counted it. But the scholars tell me there are 600. Not five, not ten. 322 refer to a single individual. 25 of them came to pass in one weekend. Not five over all these number of years. 25 in one weekend. You can check it out. There is something in this book that's different. It is the only book that is absolutely solidly historical in nature. You cannot count it as a mythological story or a legendary story. It is also the only literature in the world that has ever thrown out a challenge to the whole world. Test me and see. This is the test. No other literature had the guts to give us that challenge. This one did. Take your pick, come back at four o'clock. We're going to talk about the person who this book talks about. Is this guy, does he have characteristics in his claims that will grip my attention? It's past 11, so we'll close now. Friends, become inquirers. Learn the language of the person there. Don't start talking about the blood of the lamb first. If you go start talking about the sanctuary service first, you know what they will say? Hey, the only sanctuary I know is bird sanctuaries. <laughs> and the only service I know is what Roger Federer and jo Novak Djokovic do on the tennis courts. <laughs> so don't start talking like, you know, they know everything like you know. Come down to their level. God is calling us to do that. Because once your foundation is strong in these words, hey, you can talk with anybody else in the world. Give me the Bible. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.